0: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin.
2: Hello and welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin, and we're right here on Voice America, America's Voice. We're here in the afternoon on the East Coast, and we're here in the morning on the West Coast. And I'm I'm really excited about this topic, and I'm excited about interviewing my guest today. For those of you who uh, listen to Dr. Phil or love that kind of um, psychology, this may not be the program for you to listen to. But if you question. The kinds of approaches that Dr. Phil and others like him use, then I think you'll find this very interesting. The name of the book is Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology by David Bedrick, who is very interesting. He's an attorney by trade, spent eight years on the faculty of University of Phoenix and taught courses for the US Navy, 3M, the American Society of Training and Development the Process Work Institute, and Psychological Associations. An expert in mediation and conflict resolution, David Bedrick blogs for Psychology Today and has received numerous awards for teaching, employee development, and legal services to the community. Welcome back, and welcome welcome to us today, David.
0: Thank you, Patricia. That's a really warm welcome. appreciate it.
2: Absolutely, and I think one of the things I want to say about the book is that talking back to Dr. Phil moves past those simple pop culture answers to our psychological wounds and really gives us a light on the path of loving-kindness that leads us to deep emotional healing for all of us.
0: That, that, that That's well said. In fact, I in, in the book I try to distinguish what I call uh, mainstream psychology which is often a shame-based <laughs> psychology. In other words, Dr. Phil says to people things like, what were you thinking? As if people are doing things they're doing because they're ignorant or stupid, not because there are re- real psychological reasons moving them.
2: Yeah, the other person who I found d- does a lot of that is Dr. Laura. Uh-huh.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Dr. Laura. And and yet, you know, it's not, I, I think it's the way it's said. Now, I'm maybe for some people it works, but I think what you're saying is that for a lot of people, we need to look at things differently, such yeah. as, Body image and weight loss. Talk about that.
0: Well, uh, I'm thinking of a specific Dr. Phil show actually that he worked with uh, a number of women. I think it was four or five women who were going to be married somewhere in the next few months after the show. And they all came on to the show saying, we wanted help losing weight. So his first intervention was to take wedding dresses that would be there individual ideal wedding dresses and put it on models that were slimmer, obviously, than the women on the show. And then, so you have to imagine the scene. Let's take a person, in this case a woman person, and put her on stage and then put her next to another woman who everyone agrees, quote-unquote, Dr. Phil and his audience agree, is more attractive than that woman. And you put those together in a public scene. Now, many of us would think... That's something akin to a public shaming. It might be. And the idea is that that was going to motivate people. But I can't imagine for, for your listeners, if, if, if they're women or men, if we put them next to somebody else, a part, in part they might feel motivated, but mostly they might just feel lousy about themselves. It doesn't help. Shame and, and self-hatred, which is a lot of what moves people to lose weight, doesn't help people lose weight.
2: So, so David, let's turn it around then. What mm-hmm. does? Take that same scenario. What other alternative approach would you use for body image and weight loss?
0: Well, well, the, the important thing with, in this situation is to get to know people's actual experience and know this is the background attitudes and believe that there's something important happening for that person. So let me give you an example. I, I worked with a woman who said she wanted to lose weight, and she said her problem was that she loved caramel lattes, and they have mm-hmm multiple, I don't know, 600 calories, I can't remember the actual number uh, in them, and she can stop drinking those, and those are contributing to the, the calorie intake per day. Okay. So if we tro- if we chose a, a Dr. Phil approach, we would think, what are you thinking? Obviously, that's a bad thing. Stop. Well, everybody gets that. Most people can say I should stop doing whatever the, whatever the activity is. But I say, I wonder why she's doing that. What is she reaching for? So I so said to her... Uh, I grab a a plastic water bottle and I said, How much do you like those caramel lattes? Can you grab that water bottle as if it's a caramel latte and take it with all that strength and compassion or passion that you have? And she said, Okay. And I said, I'm going to try to, I'm going to be your diet program. I'm going to take it away from you. So she pulled, she I want it. And I said, No, you can't have it. It's making you fat. It's making you unattractive. So, and and then we pretty soon end up in this wrestling match that gets quite real. And at one point I say, You can't have it. And she says, I want it. I said, why? And she said, it's my happiness.
2: (laughs) Mm. Okay. So now you've gotten gotten to the core.
0: That's right. That's That's an amazing (laughs) moment. Now I say to her, tell me about your happiness or unhappiness in your life. And she says, I am living with a spouse who doesn't want me to pursue my career, who wants me to stay home. I've always wanted to uh, finish college, finish undergraduate degree, and go on and pursue my own career. So this is really interesting. While most people would think a diet program involves exercise and, and dietary habits, her diet program involved talking to her husband about going back to school. Knowing the story, it makes sense. She's going after her happiness. Grabbing that latte was an intelligent impulse. Grabbing something that she wants, grabbing her happiness, just not exactly the right object ultimately. So she needed help to grab her happiness. She didn't need her happiness taken away from her. If you can get that image there.
2: Let me ask you this: Is what you're saying, if then she worked it out with her husband so that she could go back to school, you think she would decrease her need for the latte? That's,
0: a, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. It doesn't happen in, with every person, but you got to you got to factor in the fact that that diet programs work for about five percent of the people. In on a sustainable way. Anybody can lose weight for a few days. But yes, she ended up losing weight. Now how? What happens is once she grabs her happiness, the symbol of the of the latte, she doesn't have to fight not wanting the latte so much. It drops away as such a as such an attractive thing because what's attracting her to the latte is her happiness, not the I was going to say stupid latte, right? Not the latte, but the yeah. but the happiness. So yeah. Oh, yeah. So the, so a person then doesn't have to fight so much with them, with with their impulse, because they understand that in a way I'm supporting their impulse towards a latte rather than trying to take fight it and take it away from her.
2: You, David, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay, because I'm 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 jumping in and I, I I'm not sure you're hearing me because oh, I want right. to make sure we're not both talking at the same time. Sorry,
0: well, oh, right, I'm getting I'm getting okay. a slight echo on my end, so maybe it's a little confusing.
2: Uh-huh. Okay, all right. But let me jump in here now. Now there's another one you talk about and that is addiction. Now Dr. Phil talks a lot about addiction on his show. Now addiction's really tough because, and the latte I'm sure was an addiction for this woman. But how do you help people break addictions maybe in a different way than, you know, a pop stream or pop psychology would? Yeah, it's uh-huh, really good. Yeah,
0: the, re- the research says that about 30% of the people are sustainably helped by addiction programs, whether they're 12 steps, whether they're year-long residential programs, whether they're regular therapy. And one of the big misses in addiction programs is, similar to the latte example, we're not dealing with how forceful and powerful the interest, the impulse, the desire for the substance is. We're trying to overcome, fight against that impulse without getting to know it. So, let me, so I can give you an example. Um, I worked with a, uh, a woman who had a very uh, powerful uh, cocaine addiction, and I asked her, "Why do you, why? why do you use cocaine?" And she said, "Well, you know, I'm bored and life is not so good, and it makes me feel a lot better." That's her theory. That's her self-explanation. She got that from pop psychology. Now I said to her, "Tell me what it's like to be using cocaine." And she sat up in her seat, and she and her chest came out. And she said, well, tell me what you mean by that. And she looked very strident and powerful. And I said, that's an interesting posture you just take. Can you feel the cocaine? Imagine feeling what the cocaine is like. And she said, sure, I can. And she sat up even more. I said, what's it like sitting up like that and looking at me like that versus the look that was more timid a minute ago? And she said, I feel quite powerful And that just took took a little bit longer than the moment I'm giving you. So here's an interesting thing. So she was hunting for, we could say, a sense of her own power and empowerment. She believed she was hunting for comfort and having a nice time. That's the theory that she believed, but it had nothing to do with her cocaine addiction. I have almost met no one who actually can give a description of why they do things that matches what they really experience. Their experience tells us something much deeper and much truer about what they're looking for than their ideas and theory, most of which come from popular psychology and media.
2: So David, do you help them figure out then what it would do? What's the replacement? What is the thing that will make her feel powerful? Did she come up with that?
0: Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's the right question. The, the, the next step for me was to say, tell me about your life relative to your sense of power. You know, whether it's a, with, how do you feel with authorities? How do you feel in relationships? Do you have a sense of power relative to, to things you want to do in the world or your career, etc.? So I'm now I'm looking through different areas of her life. That could be her inner experience. She could feel put down inside and not have enough power to stand up to her own inner criticism or she could be in a relationship, or it could be a career that she's trying to pursue. So now I'm going to start looking at these different areas of her life where a sense of power or lack thereof will be relevant, and then I would help her in each of those areas access uh, more of the power that she, that she needs. This particular woman had a lot of uh, early childhood stories where she was re- very disempowered, and those also needed a little bit of processing, because you could say those being overpowered as a kid in a hurtful way can steal a person's power temporarily
2: so you get to the core emotion basically you get down really to the core emotion of why the person does what they do with the addictive substance or with the eating and then you try to figure out what could they do to give them what behavior could they have that would give them that same feeling but it would be a good behavior. A positive behavior.
0: That's, a, that's, exa- that's exactly right, and that behavior can't be anything; it has to be genuinely hooked into. In this case, power, in the other case, happiness. It has to be genuinely hooked into what the real hunger is. I think people are hunting. I used that word before for something in mm. their substance use. In that way, there's an intelligence, not the intelligence in the in the final substance that they use to get it, but they are hunting. So if we treat them like a hunter. So to speak, who's looking for something? We're going to get a lot further uh, in understanding that, and then we can make those substitutions, as you're implying. Um,
2: let me let me go on to the third one now. The third yes, one is yes. tough. The third one is domestic abuse. So it's helping victims of violence who are often too ashamed to you know to even talk about it. So they appear happy, they deny their pain. Now, how do you get through that one in a different way?
0: True. In, it's so so difficult. So so. I mean, I don't. I can't remember the last time I looked at the at the United States emergency room budget for domestic violence. That means people who actually go to the emergency room. That means people who are hurt who don't go, and people who are not hurt enough to go to emergency room. I think it was like three billion dollars per year. Um, enormous. So it's it, it's an it's an enormous difficulty. I think there's different levels, Patricia. One is the fami- the families and the culture itself. We need a culture that starts recognizing the signals of people not being happy, of, of smiles that aren't real smiles. Yep. So that so if, if you care about somebody and you see them, if you're your child or your friend or your, or your parent or, or associate, and that person says, oh, I'm fine. If you are observant, whether that's your observant of your own feelings of dissonance or your own eyes, you'll know whether that's true or not. But so much passes by. Um, I had a work with a woman who was uh, in a violent relationship, and among other things, she had an eating disorder, and she ate so little that she would pass out because she had not enough food in her while she was going to the gym. And, right. She was, she was younger and would visit her parents regularly she'd go to a parent's table she'd have broth and, uh, and non-fat uh, frozen yogurt that was all she would eat nobody noticed the violence Patricia <laughs> so guess, it
2: was basically anorexia
0: she's basically anorexic and no one's thinking they're thinking what a pretty woman they're not thinking this person there's a violence going on even at that table not the violence in the relationship yet but the same kind of violence right there's a, the there's a same feeling and psychological thing that's happening she 's violating herself, you could say, and no one no one's noticing, even though people are watching her do that. People are complimenting her and not seeing it. So one answer to the question is that we all should start noticing things right when people are smiling, but we know better than that
2: and you know for some of us, and I can say this you know as someone who um, you know, understands a lot of this because of the work I do, as do you. But many times, folks like you and me who understand a lot of this, when we have our down periods, sometimes we have to go out and ask for help because nobody can see
1: it.
0: That's right. Nobody mirrors back. If no one mirrors back or very few people mirror back to you, that something is not so good. If uh, I work with a woman who, who was in a violent relationship, she'd run home to her family after her hurt. She was hurt. And in this case, the, the, the mother of, the, of this woman would say, I'm sure he's, he didn't mean that he's not that bad a guy, etc. It hurts to even say that. So what many people know what's happening there. But psychologically, no one's mirroring back, wow, I see that you are being hurt pretty badly here, quite badly here. So because that's not mirrored back, the person then beca- starts to internalize that viewpoint. Maybe they've internalized that viewpoint for many years. Yeah, it's not that bad. Maybe I did something wrong. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Maybe I should be forgiving. They'll use the idea of forgiveness in a way that's not, I don't think, is, is what forgiveness is all about. It's not about making believe something doesn't happen. But they've been taught to marginalize their experiences of being hurt. This is an enormous, enormous thing. I can't tell you how many people in different ways call themselves too sensitive. They psychologically label themselves, I have a sensitivity problem, when actually they're just awake to the signals, to the treatment, to the coldness, to the harshness of the world or folks around them. They're not too sensitive in the sense they shouldn't be noticing. They're actually noticing things that other people aren't noticing, but yet they don't see that as a gift or an intelligence. They diagnose themselves as having a psychological problem.
2: Okay, David, can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Hey, okay, I've been trying to, to say a few words. I guess you can't hear me, which is frustrating. I don't know what's happening with I'm sorry, sound. No, I'm sorry. That's yeah. all right. Um, but, but here's what I want to say from everything you've talked about with domestic abuse. My take on it is this, that the best you can do is try to help those people not marginalize, be able to really admit, get into their feelings, and, and speak them to a counselor so that eventually they can do something about them. Is that right?
0: So huge, yes. Such a huge step to have experiences, you know, so I don't have to say, I don't have to communicate my moral judgment, that's bad or good. I do have to witness the person's experience. What's it like going home? Do you notice, well, I, my body does this and my stomach and my solar plexus do this? Ah, tell me more about those solar plexus and the person will be describing being afraid of going home. So I don't have to give them a moral judgment, even though I have one, a moral judgment that's against domestic violence. But I want to help that person connect with their experience. I'm afraid every day I go home. That's a huge experience that that person is, as you're saying, marginalizing, trying to not have. And then they're with me, and I'm thinking, wow, you're afraid every day when you go home. That's a huge experience, a lot of intelligence in that fear.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, let's look at the last one, which is bigotry. That's a tough one. And, um, talk about how that comes up on the Dr. Phil show or shows like his show and how you would handle that.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Not a lot of people, uh, I've done a lot of interviews, not many people bring that topic up, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you do. It's an, it's an important topic. Um, I have a, I have a chapter, a chapters on the topics that we're talking about, and I have a particular chapter on, uh, on race and education, and it arose out of a Dr. Phil show where there was an African-American single mom with her young son, and he was like six or seven. I'm not remembering the exact age. And he was more interested in sports than his academics. Okay, well, that's not so great. He wasn't doing well in his academic subjects. He was getting A's in his sports classes, and, and Dr. Phil had the had young man, young boy, I guess we should call him, and his mom on the show and said, basically, you need to, dear mom, you need to be, have more tough love push this kid into uh um, into his academics and uh, and discourage his sports and then sat with this young uh, African American male and said, you know, sports are probably not going to get you anywhere. Um it's probably not going to help. It's very unrealistic, etc. Don't try to fool me. You have plenty of energy. You can do your you can do your uh, academics. So, all interesting, all good. It would be good to have someone who is watching this kid a little closely and have some tough love. But then, as an education to the public, there's no mention of the reason why a black youth would be interested in sports. Why there's a path of sports and pride uh, and a fight against prejudice in sports. What the schools are like in the inner cities, which are awful. Many people, I'm sure, on your show know that. That you know, by second or third grade, many of these kids are doomed to never finish high school, like 70% plus in some schools. Uh, what it's like for an African American male or woman to get out of a uh, college and be able to only earn 70 percent uh, 70 cents on the dollar so there's a lot of social conditions that are around but instead of laying out the difficulties of that it looks like to the to, to some outsiders that this mother is doing an ineffective job mm.
2: maybe right. she so, can do a better job but mm-hmm. so how do you help we have, we have a few minutes left david and and how do you help People get through that because it's not them, it's the system they're dealing with.
0: Right. I mean, some of it, some of it is help, is beginning to make systemic change for sure, and that's a long term problem. Working with that, uh, if I were to work with that particular African American woman and her son, I would do two things different. One is I would ask that kid about his love for sports because that kid has a certain passion and interest and excitement about his future that he sees via a sports route. I don't want to tell him, don't be interested in sports. I'm then telling him not to. I'm, I'm sort of taking him away from the route that he has. There's still a passion for success in him. I don't want to not access that. I want to know about that and that hope. And as a person who studied a, a lot and, and uh, grew up in New York and spent a lot of time in, in, in very diverse gr- groups, I understand some of that. So I, I would appreciate that. I wouldn't put that down. And then with that mother, I would help her see that she's up against something more like a mountain than a small hill. She's not up against the same thing that my parents were who grew up lower middle class, but had a lot of opportunities, and, got, and I got to go to really good high schools, et cetera, or somebody who lives maybe in a, in a, in a suburban world relative to school, in the schools. So I want that mother not to put her down and have her feel less good about herself as a mother, but have her see the enormity of the struggle that she's up against and, and the extent to which she's done some good things. I'd want her to build her up about that. I want her to walk away feeling like a more empowered mother, not a mother who's yet one more person is criticizing for being inadequate.
2: Or, or a mother who's helpless herself.
0: That's really good. That's right. Or a mother who's helpless herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So um, what is your message in this book? What do you want people, what do you want readers to walk away with after they read Talking Back to Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology?
0: Wow. Thank you for asking that question. That's, a, that's beautiful. That's something I think about for the years I've been writing Um I think if I could give a person one message, I would say inside of your difficulties, whether you call that depression, whether you call that relationship problems, whether you call that a body that's not the size you want, inside of those problems are seeds of, that could flower into our very best, into your greatest gifts, your intelligences, your feelings, your desires. Don't throw them away with labels that say somehow there's something wrong with you for having them. That kind of shame, that kind of put-down, there's something wrong with you, it's compelling, but it doesn't lead very many people to successful change. Um, But looking at it in a a loving way, saying there's something in here, can someone help me see what could grow out of this difficulty? And every difficulty has the capacity for something to grow that was different than just a life that's back to its normal status quo, but something new in the person that wants to arrive.
2: Yeah, and I also think that's beautifully stated. I also think, too that for a lot of us, and sometimes I'm in this category, when we start feeling badly for whatever reason, whether shame comes up or guilt or loneliness or fear, mm. Mm. we, and this has happened for me, you know, we, we panic. It's like, oh, what's happening? And, you know, sometimes you just have to allow those feelings to come up because it's okay. We all have them. Yeah. But we're almost trained that you shouldn't feel like that.
0: That's right. There's a there's this there's the smiling face uh, um, yes. norm, right? Smiling face, thin body, productive, getting up every day, whatever. There's a norm that whenever we feel outside of those. Uh, we've internalized the, the notion that, that we should get rid of those things. We should anti-depress it, anti-whatever. We should be against everything. Um so it gets very difficult to, to say let these experiences happen or think that there's something good in them. It, it, it's, a, it's a radical way of thinking, but it doesn't take very long with that kind of loving view for people to start seeing those things. You need another witness, so to speak, who looks at it and doesn't see the same thing that we are or, or, or the culture at large would see.
2: It's beautifully stated. How can people find your book, David?
0: Okay, there's two ways. If you uh, if you uh, Google Amazon and and uh, search for Talking Back to Dr. Phil, um, you'll be able to find the book and and lots of uh, customer reviews and um, and endorsements of the book, and and you'll be able to go inside the book. I also have a website which is called Talking Back. To DrPhil.com, that's talking back to DR, I abbreviate doctor, so talking back to DrPhil.com. And there you can link into uh, other radio shows I've done. Um, there'll be some some video of me if you want to see. There's excerpts from the book. You can connect with uh, Psychology Today articles and things like that. So all kinds of information are available there as well.
2: Thank you so much for being on the program. It was really enlightening.
0: Wow, you really did a great job, Patricia. Thanks for bringing out all those issues so quickly.
2: Thank you. All right, stay on the line for a minute. Okay, folks, our guest has been David Bedrick, author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. You've been listening to Patricia Raskin, Positive Living, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. I'm Patricia Raskin. We'll be with you next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Until then, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need and know you can make your dreams come true. Until then, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now.